We only have four weeks left in our series on James, four weeks on chapter five. Uh, from now, and then we will come up to Advent. But today we finish chapter four, verses 13 to 17. James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, in chapter 4, James has talked a lot about being humble and about pride. Pride and humility have a powerful effect upon the way we live, affecting us in big ways and in small ways. And here in James 4, 13 to 17 is one concrete example of how humility and pride affect our lives. And it has to do with how we make plans for the future. You see, the proud person says, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. The humble person, on the other hand, says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The proud person boasts in his arrogance, putting his confidence in himself that he can control his life and make himself prosper. He lives under the false impression of being independent and permanent, when in reality he has no idea what tomorrow will bring or even if he'll live until tomorrow. The humble person knows that we're created by God and completely dependent on him who rules all things. The humble person knows, therefore, that life is fragile and ephemeral. What does ephemeral mean? A mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's ephemeral. The humble person knows we're not in control of our own lives. This passage is one more illustration of how God is opposed to our pride but gives grace to the humble. Over and over again as we've walked our way through the epistle of James, we've seen that James constantly seems to be picking up on what his older brother Jesus taught and elaborating on it. And this passage is no exception. Jesus gave a parable in Luke 12, beginning in verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, 
You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is, and Jesus concluded by saying, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. And in, even in this parable, it seems that Jesus may be thinking of Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. There is so much here in James 4.13-17 for us to think about. So much which is very relevant to our lives. And the first principle is that life is, and all this teaching, is built on the fact that God is sovereign. He's the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. He does all he pleases, Psalm 115.3. He puts one down and lifts another up, Psalm 75.7. Sometimes he lifts a person up and allows him to look mighty, like that person can do anything he wants and no one can defeat him. But behind the curtain, it is actually God's power making him appear mighty. We see an, an example of this story in the story of, we see an example of this in the story of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria and his conquests. Sennacherib had been very successful in conquering all the nations around him and building a great empire. He had turned great cities into ruins and mighty peoples into conquering, into cowering, conquered beggars. And God quotes Sennacherib as saying, I've reached all these great heights myself. In Isaiah 37, 23 to 25. He thought he'd done it all himself. But God responds by saying to Sennacherib, Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I've brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone and that their people drained of power are dismayed and put to shame. Isaiah 37, 26 and 27. And then God put his hook in Sennacherib's nose and sent him back from Jerusalem the way that he had come. He sent one angel who struck 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers and the rest fled in fear. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So, Proverbs 19.21 God's sovereignty means that he is the great changer of human plans. You might have heard the joke. This is a joke I heard from a non-believer. You know how to make God laugh. Make a plan. God is the God of surprises. 
Last year, my son Nathaniel and his wife had no intention of getting pregnant and having a child, but God had other plans. And after the initial shock, they experienced the new reality with deep and profound joy. They restructured their whole lives and their whole expectation of the future around this bright new reality. But then, at seven months, their little Leon died in the womb. And suddenly the two of them were forced to completely restructure their lives and expectations yet again. It's not the way any of us would have planned it, but it's the way that God knew was best. And God insists on making the best thing happen even if we get angry with him and accuse him of doing a bad job in ruling our lives. God is not only the God of flowers and cookies and sunsets. He's also the God of losses and cancers and natural disasters and failures. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8, 9. Not only are God's ways different than ours, they are higher than ours, better than ours, wiser than ours. Our sinful nature loves to be in control, to be independent. We think if life would just go the way we wanted, we could be really happy. But this attitude is nothing but foolishness. When we think like that, we're thinking that we're better at running our lives than God is. We're thinking that we're better architects of our happiness than God is. What an insult to the one who loves us more than we love ourselves. Who wants nothing but the best for his beloved children. And is all-knowing and all-wise. So he knows what is best. Only God knows what's going to happen in the future. We have no powers of prognostication. Which means telling the future. And people try all different kinds of methods to try to determine the future and try to build the future. Do you ever get a feeling that a certain thing's going to happen? I, I have that feeling sometimes. And sometimes it does happen. But most of the time it doesn't. Do you know how many people have had a very strong sense of what's going to happen even to the point of feeling absolutely sure about it, and then it didn't happen. I know by experience that I don't have the power of prognostication. And the fact is, no one does. God gave us the ability to imagine, and it's a good gift. But, it must, but we must be careful not to put too much trust in our imaginations or our intuitions. Plans are mere intentions. Feelings about the future are mere impressions. 
In this passage, James is condemning self-assurance in one's imaginations about the future. Since when do we decide what's going to happen? The fact is, you are not a prophet, and neither am I. A prophet is someone who's given special knowledge directly from God in order to declare it to others. And sometimes they're given special knowledge of what's going to happen in the future. And there are prophets in the times of the, of the Bible, but there aren't today, at least according to my understanding of the scripture and according to the interpretation of the PCA. So, no matter how sure we feel about something happening in the future, unless it's something that God has told us in his word, we don't really know if it's going to happen. Let me tell you a quick story. This is a story about George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. George Whitfield, that great preacher of the Great Awakening. Um, he had a child, a son. And uh, he felt like God told him that this son was going to grow up to be a great preacher of God's word. And so he announced this when his son was just a baby. And Jonathan Edwards, warned his friend, warned him about this kind of thing. And before the child had grown out of being a toddler, God took the child's life. And George Whitfield learned from that never to, to count on it's an impression that he has about the future, even if it's a very strong one. That's why we need to be humble. That's why we need to say, your will be done. Praying your will be done is something Jesus taught us explicitly in the Lord's Prayer. And then he taught us by his own example in Gethsemane. When we talk about your will be done, we're not really talking about something we say. We're talking about how we think. Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles didn't always verbalize if the, Lord's, if the Lord wills when they talked about their future plans. That's not the point. The point is that they had the principle firmly fixed in their minds as they made and as they contemplated and as they communicated about their plans. So how about us? How do we handle our plans? Is the if the Lord wills principle firmly embedded in our minds? Do we know that everything we plan is tentative? Do we hold loosely to the plans that we make? Do we live our lives conscious of the fact that we're not in charge? Do we get frustrated when our plans go awry? Do we get exasperated by interruptions? Do we get irritated when our, when our ideas or proposals come to nothing? Do we feel like a failure if we don't get our to-do list done? The passage that we're looking at, James 4, 13 to 17, ends with what looks, seems at first like a verse that doesn't follow the rest. Verse 17, so, who, so the conclusion of this, he says, So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now sometimes 
um, in Scripture, the author isn't building towards a conclusion, but rather citing a principle that's true, that applies in the circumstance that he's describing. And that is what I think is going on here. Now this verse says that there are degrees of sin. And one of the most significant distinctions between some sins and more serious sins is knowledge. When we know that something is wrong to do, then it's a more serious sin than if to, to do it than if we never knew about it before or never thought about it before. Every time our knowledge of God's word increases, our culpability also increases. Now the Bible is clear that sin committed in ignorance is true sin. In the Old Testament law there was even a sacrifice to cover unintentional sins. But there's New Testament passages as well like 1 Corinthians 4.4 where Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. See also 2 Corinthians 10.18. But the severity of a sin increases if we know the right thing to do and fail to do it. And so James seems to be saying here by, by quoting this principle, Now, now that I've taught you how to think humbly about your plans, it is a sin if you fail to think this way. So, my friends, what, uh, let me, in conclusion, and it's a rather long conclusion, planning is important. People who don't make plans live lives of chaos and dysfunctionality. Some of you have gone to time management seminars. How many of you have ever gone to a time management seminar? A handful. Well, they have a lot of good things to say. They talk about asking yourself what's really most important to you and conforming your schedule and your calendar to those priorities. They talk about having a one-year plan and a five-year plan and a ten-year plan. And there's nothing wrong with any of this. But most of them don't get this right, at least the ones I've been to. They leave out the if the Lord wills part. They talk about life as if we're in charge of it, as if it's all up to us. They leave God completely out of the picture. But seeking God is the first thing when it comes to a Christian planning his life. Including God in our thinking, after all, is the first step of becoming wise. Otherwise, a person's priorities will be wrong. Plans will be made with the wrong goals in mind. And plans will become idols. Plans need to be made before the living God. What do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want us to plan? And then we need to expect that God sometimes is going to change our plans and do His will instead. I can tell you after 68 years of life that God is really good at throwing curveballs. 
And I think all my peers here would heartily agree. This is not, this may be a disagreement among some young people, but I don't think it's a disagreement among any people who have lived a long time. It seems like every time things start going smoothly, something happens which disrupts the peace, which stings deeply or which sends a shudder down your spine. God is teaching us to trust him instead of trusting our plans. He knows how easy it is for us to get attached to this life. And so he keeps sending these reminders to us in love. Verse 7, which we covered the last two weeks, says to submit to God. And that's really what James is talking about here with regard to our planning. The Christian life is a life of submission. Submitting to God's will, submitting to God's timing, submitting to God's agenda in our lives. Now, submission is not a very popular thing today. It's widely viewed as capitulating to tyranny. And we can understand. On a human level, it sometimes is. But we know that the one who rules the universe is good and wise and loves us. So to do anything else other than to submit to God is not only foolish but arrogant. Acting as if we know better than the all-knowing God. Now there are different kinds of submission. There is fear-based submission. The kind of submission when someone pulls out a gun and says, give me your wallet. It's the kind of submission that Pharaoh had when he finally yielded and let the Israelites leave Egypt. And then there's love-based submission. It's when a husband says, I don't really like yellow, but I love you so much, my dear. I want the room to be yellow. But I don't think either of these is really what James is talking about. I think James is talking about a third kind of submission. It might be called faith-based submission or wisdom-based submission. It is the submission to an all-wise and perfectly good God. A God who loves us more than we love ourselves and who promises to exalt us if we submit to him. A God who has proven his limitless love by sending his son to die on a cross. And we act like fools when we refuse to submit thinking that we know better than he does. In the end, it all comes down to worship. What truly rules our hearts? What is it that we most desire? What do we look to to give us life? What is our food? In John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is to do the work of my Father. I have food you know not of. My food is to do the work of my Father. Is that our food too? Is God our treasure? Or is our treasure the things of this earth? James quotes a person as saying, 
today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Well, Christians have a future plan we know will come to pass too, and it's a far greater plan. The fact is we can say today or tomorrow we will go into a great city, the New Jerusalem, and spend an eternity there and receive unimaginable treasure there. That is the Christian ambition. That is the Christian certainty. That is the Christian boast. And that ambition ought to outshine all other ambitions so that they seem dim in comparison to this ambition. It's really the only one that matters. If none of our other aspirations are fulfilled, we'll be more than fine if only this one aspiration comes to pass. Do we want the pathetic treasures and pleasures of this world? Or do we want the glorious treasures and pleasures of the world to come? Are we satisfied with the world's approval? Or do we hunger for God's approval? In Matthew 6, 1 and 2, Jesus says that if we receive the world's praise, then we will have gotten our reward already. When we grasp the depth of God's love for us, it makes us ready to say, your will be done. For if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We are super conquerors through him who loved us. For nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. That man is no fool who submits to a God like this. Who is both absolutely good and perfectly wise. The world says to follow our dreams. But God says that our piddly little dreams aren't nearly big enough. He's got way better, better things for us than we could have ever dreamed. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 This is why God is not content with many of our plans. They're not good enough. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3. And so our only logical response is to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not lean on our own understanding in all our ways to acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. Do not be wise in our own eyes, but fear the Lord. Let us pray. Oh Lord, what a great reminder you've given us in your word that we need to trust you instead of 
trust ourselves. And Lord, we know that we've just failed left and right. And we know, dear Lord, that we don't have the capacity to plan our lives in such a beautiful and poignant way as you plan them. Forgive us for all the times when we insert ourselves as God in making our plans and in grieving over plans that didn't come to pass. Oh Lord, you are God and you are a good God. We thank you that you love us and that you order our lives so competently, so wisely, and so well. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us to trust and let you be God and know that you love us and therefore you work all things together for our good. And now, dear Lord, what a blessing to celebrate what Christ has done by fulfilling your command to practice this sacrament that you've instituted, that our Lord instituted on the last night before his crucifixion. We pray that we would meet you here and that as we feed upon these ceremonial elements of bread and wine, that in our hearts we would be feeding on Christ who we know is here with us. For we pray in his dear name. Amen.